Yo, what's up? Welcome back to another installment of the Other Side of the Sun podcast. I am the Solar Kid, and today I have a guest all the way from Cape, a beautiful Cape in South Africa. His name is Daniel Mpilo Richards. Yes, sir. DMR Productions, is that correct? That is correct. Welcome, my brother. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Welcome to the show. Thank you, brother. It's an What's honor. Cape Town it's a pleasure. Pleasure. Uh, you're not in Cape Town exactly. You're just outside, isn't it? Just outside of Cape Town in Clan William, uh, which is two and a half hours outside of Cape Town. Hey, people are going to come visit you now. I was watching the <laughs> That's flat. <laughs> <laughs> too specific. I was too specific. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, just don't don't blame me if you get the call and people say, "Hey, is that Daniel?" Hey, Amen. <laughs> you married? Are you single? <laughs> yeah, man. Oh gosh, yeah, brother. How you doing? I'm good, man. It's 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 weird. It was like just moving into autumn here, and now all of a sudden we got the freak 27 degree, bro. It's boiling. Oh, yeah. Literally, this country is like will be hot. And cold, and then you know, I mean, you've been here, so you know how weird yeah. it can be in London. Just, yeah, absolutely. Just, we're having like a bit of an Indian summer here. But um, Daniel is a filmmaker, filmmaker, actor, musician, philanthropist. <laughs> I thought I'd just throw that one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, man, that's, I always find that that word interesting philanthropy because it it implies that that i've got cash to throw around <laughs> like yeah i'm just gonna join the, the un and i'm gonna yeah. <laughs> gonna help uh, these underprivileged people around the world yeah exactly change change the course of of, of south africa no ways no. getting there I'd say, I'd say I'd uh, say social activist then. Yeah, I would say social activist. That's that's a good word, a good title. But primarily uh, actor, filmmaker. Yeah, I think. I mean, acting acting's taken a backseat over the last two years, and I find myself more in the producing, directing, and editing space. Um, and I'm thankful that I kind of made that transition uh, two years ago because uh, COVID has shown me that being an actor in South Africa is very temperamental and unstable. Well, so generally, wherever you are. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. But I mean, I, I feel like in the UK, there's, there's more of a structure to lean on. You know, it's easier to be exploited as an actor in South Africa than it is in the UK. In what sense? And, well, purely on the sense that that the entertainment industry in the UK is unionized. Oh, so there's you know, there's there's that minimum wage type of thing. Mm. Whereas here, if you kind of argue about a a figure that someone should be paying you they could just drop you and, and go and look for someone that's willing to work at that figure. Yeah. I mean, it's the same in my industry. Which is tricky. It's the mm. same in my industry. Like, obviously, as a sound engineer, I mean, I don't really do as much live gigs as before, but like generally speaking, if I was doing that back home, I mean, the scope and like you say, the support is just not there. I mean, my friend has his own business. He's been doing really well for a long time. 
but COVID has hit him quite hard, obviously, with the fact that there's no, you know, yeah. where you know, people are getting followed, you know, there's follow scheme mm. in place to keep people's, you know, pay taking over, there's been government incentives that they've been providing mm. for people, like self-employed, like myself, you know what I mean? So, like, I completely get where you're coming from. Yeah. Tough, man. Yeah, tough, 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 tough. But we, we push through. We push through. Well, that's what makes uh, South African, isn't it? That, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. That thick skin, bro. <laughs> Dealing with all of the nonsense that you have to deal with. <laughs> thick skin. Just to get by, man. Just to get by. So tell us a bit about um, young Daniel. What was your upbringing like, man? Your... Whoa. Young Daniel was a short, fat kid. Yes. Grew up in yeah, man. Who grew up in Johannesburg? And oh, so you grew up in Joburg? Yeah, I was I was born in Switzerland, and we settled in Johannesburg when I was about, I think, four or five years old. Okay. My parents my parents were were studying all over the world, and by the time we had got to Joburg, I had lived in Cape Town, America, and Switzerland. Wow. So it's Joburg was Joburg was a strange place for me. It felt like a <laughs> concrete jungle. And I I think I I never knew what I wanted to do with my energy until midway high school when I when I discovered the acting world and I got the opportunity to be in a show called Lord of the Flies at the Market Theatre. Nice. I love I love that book. Wow, I love. That. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's it's a dark one, but yeah. it's especially for a, a young teen. There are a lot of lessons in there, and I think I just had the opportunity to throw myself into this other world. You know, find my creativity. And I remember standing on stage one night and thinking to myself, I could probably do this for the rest of my life. Nice. Because it was, it was just so freeing and so, yeah, just it was just amazing. That um, was one of my first major platforms as well. Really? Yeah, it's weird. While I was studying sound engineering, I was also doing a Saturday um, poetry and acting class at the lab at the Market Theatre. Okay. And um, yeah, so I got to perform there, and it helped me just you know with my poetry and live poetry and stuff as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I always found going to the market theater a joy because it was an excuse for me not to have to do well at school. So if a teacher <laughs> asked me, like, why didn't you do your homework? I was like, I'm busy at the market theater, obviously. I've got, I've, got, I've got more important things to do with my life. Yeah, man. There was such and a good vibe there, good energy there, man. You know, even before Absolutely. our time, you know, I mean, there was Skippy's was there and all those places, you know, there's a, a mm. history of, of things going on. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And then I I moved from, from Joburg to Cape Town midway through high school, finished up my high school in, in Cape Town and and then, you know, studied studied in Cape Town. Um, and I, to be honest, much preferred the vibe in Cape Town than than in Joburg. More laid back or yeah, more laid back, mountain, sea, family. So I'm, assuming, in Cape Town. I'm assuming you didn't have much of the, the hood uh, involved in your upbringing then, probably more in the suburb side of things. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 I grew up, I mean, look, my experience of Johannesburg was, I, I remember riding my bike. I fixed, my father had got me this bike, but he made me put it together myself. My father was uh, training to be an engineer at the time. And his rule was, you got to be able to build it before you ride it. <laughs> so, so I, I, I sit for two weeks trying to put this bicycle together. I eventually get it all together. And my first journey out into the streets of Josie, <laughs> my guy, I'm going, well. going down the hill. And I, I now get to the bottom of the hill and I need to push the bicycle back up the hill and halfway up pushing this bicycle up the hill, I get robbed at knife point. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Wow. But yes, Jersey. <laughs> yeah, Jersey. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Jersey living. Jersey living. Jersey living. No, but that's, that's just my experience. I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of other good experiences in Jersey, but there's an energy to that city that, doesn't sync with me. It's quite tense, isn't it? Like, I mean, um, yeah. if you grow up within that tension, like, I know, like, I, I still feel it when I go back home sometimes. You know, I have to kind of prepare myself before I get home because now I'm coming with a whole troop of foreigners and my family mm-hmm. and stuff. So we have to be mentally in the mind state, you know? <laughs> <laughs> isn't that just the strangest thing, man? Yeah. That you have to prepare to, to, to enter that kind of space. Yeah, it's, man. It's strange. They, call, they don't call it GP, Gangster's Paradise, for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but then on the, on the flip level, it's so easy, like for a lot of tourists. I mean, I've, I've met people over here that have been through Joburg. And then obviously, generally their journey is like airport, Rosebank, or Bryanston, or Santon, and then Sun mm-hmm. City. So they don't see any mm-hmm. of the other like shit around Joburg. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like, they mm-hmm. like, oh, mm-hmm. it's amazing and rah, rah, rah. Okay, now you're right. It is a beautiful, it's a beautiful country. Uh, such a yeah. percentage of um, what actually goes down, you know. It's so easy to be able yeah. to go. Even Cape Town. I mean, Cape Town is another one. You can fly over Kyalicha and, you know, mm-hmm. my grandmother and them live in Elsie's River. So, like, they ride by the airport. You see the planes coming over. Fly into Cape Town International and it's like a table bay, the Clifton, whatever. And you, Cape Town is beautiful. Yeah. It's easy to see South Africa for what it is. Totally. Just skip through all of the poverty and just go to the other side of other side of the mountain. So um you obviously you well traveled. I know you've traveled quite extensively. You've been to the States, you've been in Asia, um, all those places. You were in Asia yeah. just as lockdown hit. So like um Yeah. How would you say traveling has uh, affected your perspective? Like every time you come home, you know what I mean? How is it like <laughs> yeah. it's that's a that's a, a a layered one because traveling broke my perception of how I would like to function in society. <laughs> I think the the I like the, the uh the experience I had, particularly in the UK, because I spent quite a bit of time in the UK, is I started to realize how much fear I carried around as as a South African. So 
be, when you're in another country, you suddenly realize what you do have and what you don't have in your own country. And so the toss-up is, you know, South Africa is this incredibly diverse, beautiful country. But at the same time, there are a lot of blankets put over the reality of the country. And, and we found, found unique ways to hide those, those, those pieces of the country. So that when tourists come, they experience the 10% of, of what this country actually is like. So traveling has showed me that because, you know, when, you, when you're a tourist in another country, you also just see certain sections of that country yeah. that, that, that people might guide you towards. You know, you're going there to experience things as a tourist. But when you get to live in a country, you get to actually interact with with the community and and see what the standard of living is like. So, yeah. traveling has certainly changed my perspective on how I would like to live in whatever country I end up living in. Um, yeah, how is it? Um, how would you say it's uh, affected your perception, like towards South Africa itself? Like, is it positive or negative? Or it's it's both. I think you have to choose. Some days, some days it's more positive than negative. Other days it's more negative than positive. The I certainly have noticed where uh, South Africa is lacking in terms of accessibility and accessibility, transport, and safety. Mm. Those those two things. You know, if you, if you don't have a car in South Africa, yep. and you need to take public transport. Good luck to you because you're going to be spending a lot of time, a lot of time on those things. And if, and if you, if you make it through, um, I just hope you don't get, you know, you don't get rustled up by, by whoever <laughs> notices that you're, that you're not supposed you to be there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, so, it even happens to people who are local, you know, so. Yeah. Exactly, man. So you, you almost stick out like a sore thumb when you yep. when you. I right stick out when I come home. But really? Yeah, bro. <laughs> it's weird. I thought I still had that swag, that Joburg swag. Yeah, the last time I was there, I literally we hired a car. I went to the petrol station. I'm still like, yeah, shop, shop, my bro. And this guy is like, where are you from London? I was like, what? <laughs> Now, bear in mind, when we come over, it's winter over here. So, I probably have no complexion at all. I probably look very ah, like London. So, they're probably like, oh, this must be a learning from London. You're trying to come. <laughs> yeah, no. It is. I, I completely get that, man. You, you completely forget. But oh, people oh. are certainly very... Uh, I, I have noticed the positive thing is that, that people in South Africa are quite quite a warm group of people. Yeah, definitely. That communicate with each other in the street and, and in public transport versus, you know, sitting in the tube in London and yeah. like everyone's just silent and on the phones, earphones or books or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's strange. How do you feel, um, how do you feel about that culture? Because that's something that hit me early on is like, what I've noticed is that there's, there's a very, even if you're not, if you're like a working class kid or whatever, you get on the train and you pick up a newspaper and you start reading, even if you're a kid, mm. you know, there's a mm. big uh, culture of that. So I'd say like information is, you know, like people, 
just get fed more information that way, whereas like there's not much of a reading culture back home, I'd say, in that sense, where you just get on public transport. And That's true. That's true. There's not much of a, a, a reading culture in public. And yeah, I don't know. I actually haven't thought about that before. Uh, and I wonder whether, you, you know, uh, certainly like Wi-Fi or cellular devices are, are cheaper on that side of the world. We yeah. are paying crazy rates just Bro, to get access to internet. Oh my man. God. It's, I've seen that, man. It's ridiculous. It's insane. It's insane. So you, you almost, you, I'm thinking now you, people don't get access to that information because it's just not affordable. Yeah. Which is I mean, sad. Every, sad. Every second person has a phone or two with unlimited mm-hmm. internet access. You know, mm-hmm. at fingertips on call 24-7, you know what I mean? There's no waiting for data and bundles unless mm-hmm. you're on that plan. But literally, even if you're on pay-as-you-go, you can still buy a data bundle plan with unlimited data for next to nothing. Yeah. So even pick up a cheap smartphone for like 50 quid or something, you know what I mean? And you, you sort it, you know? It's crazy. It's mad. It's weird how they've uh, engineered these things. Yeah, absolutely engineered these things. Kept us, Kept us in the dark, man. The dark continent. <laughs> Africa. Africa. Yes. That actually brings me on to, um, so I watched you on your website, you had the Oxford Pistols, man. I found that really interesting. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that, man. I mean, really interested. How did, how did that happen? So I was given a, awarded a scholarship by the, uh, it's called the Shevening Scholarship by the British Council. And, through that scholarship, I got to study my master's at any uh, university institution in in the UK. And through that process, um, the Shevening Scholarship is all about networking and gathering information to then feed back to your community. And on my journey through this scholarship, I met a number of people and they've done a couple of speeches uh, because I'm linked with my father's foundation. Uh, and my father's foundation does work in traumatized communities. So we, our aim is to facilitate healing in traumatized communities. And I was approached by the organizers of the Oxford Peace Talks to speak about, I think the subject was the digital landscape and how how we can almost use the digital landscape to change the world but you didn't have to be you know you didn't have to stick to that that theme so robustly mm. and so i spoke about i just spoke about how the, the work that the foundation has been doing in gangland in, in cape town and how cape town in many ways is is a city that has two cities. There's one city on 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 the on the beach side, Camps Bay, the picturesque side where everybody visits, and then there's the other side of the mountain where <laughs> there's gang violence, bro. It's like like it's mad. It is fucking um, Landato Bay and bloody all these, yeah, you know, bro. all chilling in their Ferraris and. <laughs> yeah, and you literally just have to drive twenty minutes 
and you are in gangland where you can't drive through gangland because if you don't, if someone doesn't know you, your car might get shot at. Yeah. You know, it's like it's that real. And so I, I I shared that in my 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 Oxford Peace talk because I think often we we ignore or aren't even educated about those types of atrocities that are just constantly occurring under our noses. Mm. We're too concerned about our our own living, our own space, and and that rightfully so. But we just got to be com- what they um, it depends what they choose to show on the news as well. Absolutely, perspective, especially in the digital climate. You know, the the one thing I always come back to is an image of I think I saw it on Facebook about a year ago. Uh, it was Cape Town tourism, and they were advertising Cape Town. And there's this drone shot of Camps Bay and the mountain, and like they just slide across this this beautiful landscape. And I'm like, look on the other side of the mountain, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Like as you fly into Cape Town, you just look down as you land at the airport and you see all of that stuff. Yeah. You know, you, you don't even realize. Yeah. So that's what, yeah, you know, that's what my Oxford Pistol kind of touched on was that there's, there's this other, this other world and, and somebody's gotta, somebody's gotta address those issues. Um, we can't, we can't ignore it for too long because I think there, there's a fact I mentioned in the Oxford Pistol, which was there are, triple the number of gang members in Cape Town than there are South African Defense Force officers. Wow. And I don't think people realize that if the gangs in Cape Town alone decide to come together, they will outnumber our defense force <laughs> in yes. South Africa. Hey, we shouldn't be broadcasting this shit. Stuffy's you know, <laughs> stuff is, uh, stuff is people might be watching me on the other side of something. <laughs> no, man. These are the facts you don't know about. And yeah, it's 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 that close to my father always used to say, we you know, we're this close to civil war. Because mm. if those guys decide that they don't have enough, they're just gonna take a ride 20 minutes to the other side of the mountain where there are those mansions and people living their best lives with cocktails and what <laughs> and let's go there's the, the money's there well it's interesting it hasn't happened now speaking about um Stachy, tell us tell us that story man i love that story about um going into the the gang boss in order to negotiate the, the peace. yeah so yeah like to hear about that and also what the reason was for it I mean, so my father I mean, he's got so many accolades and, and he's, he's 60 now. So he's got 43 years of work experience, which is mind blowing. But he was called in by community members to negotiate peace amongst the gangs. And this comes from a history of my father. My father headed up, uh, two of the, uh, committees for the truth and reconciliation commission and started uh was the director general for the scorpions so the scorpions is like a a anti-corruption unit in south africa elite anti-corruption elite that was actually this band because <laughs> it was too good it was too it was good, so good. <laughs> like no 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 this is too close too close though so my father gets called in to do 
peace negotiations with his gangs, with his gang leaders, and he's got uh, 10, 10 gang leaders who want to kill each other. They've, they're all armed, but they've all decided to attend this seminar by my father, and he's, and he's, and he's in the middle of gangland. And BBC hears about it. BBC comes out to cover it. And over the course of those few weeks, my father kind of shares um, his books with him about how the economy should be running, how they contribute to that economy, not in the right way, but, you know, organized criminals are, we, we're not talking about guys that are just stealing all the time. These guys are highly organized gangs. Yes, bro. With, you have yeah, to be they, very intelligent to like uh, be able to pull that stuff off. Absolutely. So, so my father spoke to that intelligence with these guys, and they they agreed to, you know, stop fighting, stop stop the gang violence for a while. And so it was it was the longest ceasefire in the history of gang violence on the Cape Flats, and that was. That was a moment where the government was about to send the army into gangland because it was getting that bad. My father steps in. He kind of puts a cap on that. Uh, but then, you know, the, the, the government just didn't want to, want to step in at all afterwards. And so that, that gang violence picked up again, um, a few months later. But then I got to visit a, one of the most notorious gang leaders because he gets counseled by the foundation. So the foundation uh, offers therapy to community members and to gang leaders. And this gang leader wanted to share his story with us, with both my friend and I. So we went in and, and recorded him and, and blurred out his face wrote down his story and he essentially wanted us to write a book about him, but we ended up writing a play and performing this play for, for his, his gang members and the kids in the community. And, and yeah, set, set out to kind of change consciousness in that way. I like that a lot. I think you said something about, um, during the time of the ceasefire, the kids were allowed to go on buses to come and see the play. Yes. And, um, yes. Yes. Guys also incited a lot of discussion between the kids as to like, you know, the, you know, about the play and what you've been, you know, what it was about, which to me is how change is, you know, definitely mm. entered in a, in, in, in a very positive way because yeah. kids are, are affected by those things, you know, and it's such positive information, you know, they, they, the future who will be bringing about the change. And I really love that. Yeah. hundred percent, man. And I think what people, what people don't understand is that there are there are so many kids in these in these communities who only have reference of that space. You know, it's it's their house. They walk across the road, across a field, which might bullets might fly across that field. They get to school, they attend school, they go back home. That's their that's their world. And so to to br break them out of that, to literally put them on a bus, take them to the center of town. And show them that there's something else that is existing. It just like like traveling does for us. Mm. It broadens your perspective, blows your mind, and goes, "Oh, I don't actually have to live in that bubble. 
over there. Yeah. So how do how do I get out? That's true, and there will be there will always be the ones who get out. You know, there will always be the ones who yeah. want to franchise because nobody chooses. I mean, okay, you choose maybe at some point, but nobody really wants to or likes that life. You know, I mean, constantly looking over mm. your shoulder and being, you know, trying to like um, make yourself hard in order to survive this reality. Like, I'm sure people would all want to enjoy their lives and not have to worry about those things. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Unless, unless that's the only thing you know. So, um, I was introduced to you by a good friend of mine, Liam, and uh, mm-hmm. he told me about this other project you're working on, Project Orange. You want to just uh, yeah. give us a bit more on that? Absolutely, man. Project Orange started in May 2020 in response to lockdown, COVID-19 pandemic. And at the time, my father just became a stakeholder in a commercial citrus export farm. So this farm sends millions of oranges uh, to where you are, to, to the me. UK. <laughs> so that you can enjoy the fruits of our labor. <laughs> That's the way it is. You know, you, you, know you dig in the dirt, we get the diamonds, so the queen gets the diamonds. And then you sell it back to us for, mm. for more, you know? Yeah, that way you guys stay dirty and they stay yeah, real and yeah. pretty. Keep us, keep us low. Keep us dark in Africa. Mm. So, so Project Orange um, started with a negotiation between the Ruben Richards Foundation and the farmers of the Olifants River Valley. So the Olifants River Valley is in... Uh, in the Cedarburg, which is just outside of Cape Town, one of the most fertile lands in South Africa for citrus. And the foundation, or my father, Dr. Ruben Richards, said to them, seeing as it's a good harvest this year, would you be willing to donate a tithe of your harvest to the foundation so that we can distribute that to vulnerable communities? Because in South Africa, you know, when lockdown hit, it was the call was to self-isolate and to stay home. But for the majority of our population, that that was impossible. Mm-hmm. One because of just purely based on how how many of the cities are laid out, a lot of informal settlements, people are living on top of each other. You're breathing the same air as your neighbour, and for the majority of the population, the, if they weren't working, they they weren't living. They weren't be able to feed themselves. So we wanted to address that issue by boosting the immune systems of vulnerable communities so that they could continue to potentially function in the way that they wanted to. And since May, we've been sending out oranges to across South Africa. So, so far we've delivered just over 5.5 million oranges to vulnerable communities in South Africa. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been incredible. It's been absolutely incredible just to see the joy on people's faces when they, when they receive an orange, a free orange or a bag yeah. of oranges, depending on, on, on what we're able to give them on that day. No, that's so cool, man. That's really cool. So is this, is it, is this initiative going to continue or is it, for this year, the harvest. So we we will this. It will end 
Project Orange 2020 will end at the end of the harvest season, which is now at the end of September, um, because we can't give oranges that we don't have. And I think our intention is to make this an annual thing where we link up with other organizations and companies to just give back to the community. We've got, you know, this valley produces millions of oranges and not all of them are export quality for the snobs in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, you you can't go into Tesco and have a a wonky orange or a blue orange. I mean, what do you you think of us? (laughs) Exactly. Standards. We've got standards. Standards here, you know. It doesn't matter what time of year it is. We expect only the highest quality oranges. You know? Summer, winter, whatever. We want avocados from South America. We want yeah. we want uh, you know plantain. We want everything. Perfect yeah, man. coffee. Yeah. You know, yeah. Everything there so, on demand any time of year. Have you seen that documentary on Netflix called Avocado Wars? Uh, oh man. I'm Incredible. Like the reason why we have avocados all year round is because uh, Mexico found a way to like mass produce avocados and blow off the the American market and just take over the avocado the avocado space. So that is why we have avocados all year round. Similar with oranges, but not no, as. Well, this is this is um. I mean, I'm I'm kind of veggie. I mean, I call myself flexitarian, so I Ooh. eat um. Mostly veg, but then every now and again, I'll have some fish or like some chicken if I feel like mm-hmm. it. But um, the point I'm trying to make is like the whole thing with veganism is like all these vegan people are so against, you know, animal cruelty and rightly so. But then at the same time, like the quinoa that they're eating and the avocados that they're eating, there's a lot of like exploitation going around mm-hmm. regarding how they, they, you know, it's easy to be vegan in a first world country. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's easy to yeah. be vegan, you know. Like, I don't know if you lived in you know, how easy it is if you lived in Kailicha or Soweto to be vegan. <laughs> Dude, I mean, come on. <laughs> I don't know if they have like vegan stores on the side of the road. Like <laughs> so, I mean, let's. I mean, I don't want to be discriminatory, but I doubt. I doubt that you've got a, a little vegan. I mean, how, how is it over there? Is it quite a big? Has it become quite a big fad as well as it's as it's. In Cape Town, yes. I mean, Cape Town is is a melting pot for the world. So yeah. we have got foods from all over the place. And I think Cape Town, because it's in some ways, Cape Town is quite snobby with with in in that respect. Because anything that's European and or mm. just otherly is is in Cape Town now. It's like. Okay, what I remember there was a stage where it was all about kale, you know. It's just like, kale, yes. you know, there was that that fix, that, and that then there's national vibe. Yeah, so I still like my kale, by the way. Much. Okay, okay, okay. I'm not, like not discriminating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Cape Town's all about jumping on those trends. Eh? Well, it is an international city, but then at the same time, there's not much. I spoke to a guy from Cape Town today, a friend of mine, um, who was actually on one of the previous podcasts, Perspective. And we were talking about the, the, the gigging, like the club scene, like the, um, mm. the live circuit. And mm. why it's so dead out there, like, and why, like, there's nothing going on. I mean, even before lockdown, you know, like. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. It's it's strange. I think it's it's I think it's the culture. Is oh, they want to pay for shit. <laughs> yeah. No one, no one wants to spend hard and can well, no one can afford it basically. Entertainment yeah. the luxury. I mean, I don't even think people it's not that people can't afford it. I mean, sure the majority of the population might not be able to afford it, but I mean, I want to see how many people have Netflix or have subscriptions to to all of these types of things. Mm. But it's I think this just is a lack of live entertainment culture in South Africa. We've got so much talent, but it's is people just don't want to come out and 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 support that because it's just not it's not in our culture yet. Well, we must speak, man. I'm, I mean, that's something. I'm definitely thinking about improving in future and trying to work with people around there and how to actually change that, you know, because it's important. Mm. important. And I don't think, I mean, I know my parents spoke about going to see bands. Obviously, it wasn't as easy, but definitely it's something that needs to change and needs to happen. Mm. Speaking of which, you, you're a musician as well. Like, are you still doing any music or was it just a phase? Yeah. What's your, I mean, what's your music like? I've been, I've been a closet musician for, so many years and so I I play the piano the guitar well, bass play them man <laughs> <laughs> and I I think my music my love for music got reignited when I went more into the film world because I you know, buying rights for music for for film is is expensive. Yeah, and so I I started like composing my own stuff, and just realized, man, I've I've been I've been sitting with my guitar for like ten years now. Maybe it's time I I actually yeah. release something. I mean, I've because of all of my live performances with my one man shows that I've I, I ex- toured with extensively, I will. I will always include a at least three musical items. Um, I just don't. I don't have anything out in the digital space in terms of music, which which I I really want to do. I really want to get oh. some stuff out. There's always time for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But music for me is like a a safe space. You know, it's a space I go to to relax and to just express myself. For for myself, catharsis. Absolutely, that's the word catharsis. So, uh, yeah. Speaking of which, are you a spiritual? Do you believe in God? Do you, are you hmm. I I I'm a spiritual human. I grew up in a Christian home. My father has his doctorate in Hebrew studies in the Old Testament. So. And I, I, in Joburg, I, I was at a Catholic school. So I'm very familiar with that landscape. And I think over the last eight years, I've become spiritual more than, more than religious. I feel like religious constructs, um, have been used to oppress. Certain yep. sections of society. Very much so. That's my opinion. And traveling in the east has that affected your, um, 
as it made you more receptive to the Eastern and mystic, you know, philosophies from the East? Yeah. I think traveling in general has just made me accept different perspectives mm. and and removed the inclination to discriminate against other people based on their beliefs. And fear as well. They, and yeah, absolutely. So religion yeah, religion is a strange thing. I I can't I can't uh expect you to believe what I believe and you can't expect me to believe what you believe, but we can exist in the same space. Yeah, and, and we do. Whether, yeah. whether we like it or not, like I, the one thing that I don't not that I don't get well that I find interesting about people is that Everyone, like a lot of people who are like fundamentalists or like, you know, these extremists, especially in terms of whatever they are, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, whatever. We still go to work with different people from different faiths, mm. different religions, different backgrounds. Mm. And a lot of times you have friends from either faith or background. So mm. how do you still manage to like draw the line between you and this person, even though you have such a good relationship or you get along mm. so well with them? You know I mean, how can you draw such a, like you said, those those constructs create division, isn't it? Like, mm. like you said, the constructs of religion or formalized religion as such. Because for mm. me, I can like, yeah, um, I get, I get like, I can appreciate like Jesus as a person, as a man, and the philosophies and teachings of him, and as a prophet, and you know, even as the son of God. You know, I don't want to get into debates about that because, for me, we're all sons of God. We are all God. But, mm -hmm. um, when you start to define and put rules and regulations and interpretations on a book that has been rewritten very, very many times and translated mm. very, very many times, whether the word stays the same and the sentiment stays the same, it becomes a bit of a non-debatable subject for me because like, I believe every person should use their fucking intellect and Mm -hmm. You know, that should help you to decipher like who you are in this world. And like you can hear good whether Muhammad says it or Jesus says it or Buddha says it. As a person, mm -hmm. you should be able, it should resonate with you. Like, you know, if it says love your brother or love your neighbor or in whatever, alhamdulillah, you know what I mean? It's, mm. it's you know what I mean? That we are humans. But that's just me. Mm. Anyway, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this type of stuff, especially being in South Africa. Yeah, I think it's, I, this year I've, I've really connected to the idea that I've just got to operate with, with love. And it's, and it sounds so like oh, wanky oh. and like, no, it's I mean, real. It's, it's just, you've got to, how that's, that's the basis. I mean, everybody, everybody experiences some form of love. So why not just operate from that, from that space? Mm. You, you can't go wrong. Um, regardless of what you're, beliefs your religious beliefs are or your whatever social constructs you live by if you operate from a place of love i don't think you are necessarily going to discriminate or like you know all of these these it's hard to come from a place of negativity when you when you when your basis is love isn't it? yeah yeah exactly and I mean, we find that so much. I mean, even like within the so-called colored community, you have Muslims and Christians living side by side. But mm -hmm. this grandmother will say, hey, Los Amesian Leon say slums. 
That's why I used to get so like, I wasn't so allowed true. to date. Uh, like, the, like the, I mustn't date Muslim chicks. So I was like, what? Don't, no, no, no. Uh-huh. My first chick was Muslim. <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. That don't, that don't make sense to me. Like, you know, honestly. And it goes deeper than, you know, the father, my, the story my father always tells me is how he, because he's, he's quite a dark man. And my mother is, is a very light woman. But they were both classified as colored. But my mother's family and the community did not accept my father because because of his dark skin. But it's like, wait, so not not only did they were they able to classify all of us as so called colored, but now within that bracket, there are further levels and discriminations happening in and amongst the community. It's just that is. That is the fucking brains of these motherfuckers. Who yeah. You know what I mean? My dad is just, my dad's from Cape Town. Dark as the night. My mom is uh, fair like me, you know what I mean? Same, uh, same situation, you know what I mean? I wouldn't say they didn't accept uh, him, but there's always that apprehension, you know what I mean? Uh, even though we both fucking classified as colored, like, come on, man. <laughs> That's the mental enslavement, but that is, yep. that is, it's it's dark and so deep within our DNA to to dissect these kind of things and go wow I mean we've been we've been taught to respond to color in this way it's, yeah well you know how long it took me like and I mean it's still a big part and it still sees that way but like when I came to to the UK it was a slow breakdown process of not looking at the person and immediately judging him by judging them by the color of mm. his skin or the shape of their face or their eyes and all that type of shit. Because, mm. and I realized over time that that is how you were just brought up. I mean, my parents weren't like really, you know, they weren't racist. They didn't teach me that way. They were very open, you know, I mean, we had an open house and shit like that. But still, it's there. It's like in you. Do you know what I mean? And I felt so free once I just started this whole thing dissipated, you know, this whole kind of thing of, oh, he's this, he's white, he's black, he's Chinese, he's this. And then you start to mm. really get to know people, you know? Mm. You get to know people you can trust, people that are like real friends. And like, I hardly notice these things anymore. And like, obviously being in London, my circle of friends is dramatically diverse. Mm. From South America to East Asia to North America to Africa to all over India to anywhere in the world, you know what I mean? And people mm-hmm. that I look at as friends and not a fucking, you know, social construct or bloody, you know what I mean? Whatever you want to call it, you know, culture. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's deep. People fight for these things, you know, they fight for their culture, they fight for their, 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 their caste or their, you know, their, their color or whatever. And it's like, Dude, it's the 21st yeah. century. <laughs> like, come on, man. People go to war for this stuff. And have been. I mean, look at this whole Black Lives Matter movement now. And there you go. Yeah. Why, what did you think about all that? Sure. Again, a layered question. I think with layered responses, it, it speaks to a, I guess, an unhappiness and a, a societal discrimination that for me goes back much further than, than the 
20th, 19th, 18th century. We're talking about, we're talking about way back when history. And for me, it's something like uh, Black Lives Matter conversation is so important. It's, it's a, it's a almost a watershed moment in, in, in global history. But we, it was an interesting moment for me as a South African because everything that was happening in the States, for example, I could go, that's, that's also happening here. So why are our people not talking about the same thing? What is, what is it about our culture that we just, have we just gotten used to or censored, uh, sensitized, sensitized the word? Have we, yeah, desensitized to the fact that there's, that there's such atrocities happening in our, in our society. So it's such an important conversation. And I hope that that conversation begins to bring about the plotting of a new narrative for, for, for people of color, because it, when we realize how we've been conditioned to think and respond and how entrenched that is in our DNA, we've got to begin to address our history books mm. and look at what, what we've been fed from day one. And when you, when you begin to see those types of levels, it's quite overwhelming. Um, it's for us it's more complex as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, yeah. Um, well, I say a lot of so-called colored people don't even regard themselves as black. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's very, very, um, very touchy and uh, complex, like subject to navigate. As I saw now on Facebook, there's a colored lives matter. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh man! You see what I mean? Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's these. Yeah, there was a, there was a whole. I think a, a few weeks ago there was yeah there was this Twitter debate about do do, do colored people have uh, culture? You know, there was this. Oh, that, yeah, that's this, been a long ongoing um, debate. Yeah, um, and I mean, who for me? I like I couldn't care less whether we have culture or not. Let's just understand our history and where we come from first. Yeah, because that's where our our identity lies. So what does your father have to say? Because, I mean, he's written a book um, called Bastards uh, Bastards of Humans, 500 Years of Intimacy Between South Africa and Europe. Yes. Yes. I don't know how we can get it, but it's available. Yes. uh, We need to to create an an e-book for it because, I mean, it's 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 such a massive two, it's it's a two-volume work. Um, about the history of colored people in South Africa, but it speaks about the koi sand, you know, it speaks about the koi and the sand and how we, how the original inhabitants of South Africa were the koi and the sand and the Europeans came and rewrote that history mm. and actively exterminated a group of people and tried to write them out of history. Genocide! Genocide! <laughs> Man, genocide. 
Don't get one me started, time. bro. Don't get me started on that shit. Bro. Because it goes, it goes as deep as South America as well, Papua New Guinea, yeah. Australia. There you go. Do you know what I mean? And then yet every year, please, Jewish people don't. I've got 12% Jewish in it. Every year we have to hear about the fucking Holocaust. Please. I know it was a sad event and I know that it was a very deep traumatic thing. But there was fucking genocide in the Congo. There was genocide in South America. The Spanish wiped the motherfuckers out. South Africa, mm-hmm. genocide. A fucking mm-hmm. Australia, the aboriginals, the fucking population. Mm-hmm. Choking, man. We don't hear none of that mm-hmm. shit. No, we don't. We don't. We don't Every hear year we have to hear about the Holocaust, you know, especially here in Britain, we have to they commemorate it and whatever and stuff like you know what I mean? So it's yeah. deep. We need we need to speak about these things and we need to like I mean that's why books like that are important for people to get their hands on. So true. So true, Especially so true. For people and of this this of this so called colored calling, we need to be reading and understanding yeah. these things. Yeah. And thankfully this this these two volumes of work have been accepted into the syllabus for uh, into the education into the education system of South Africa. Oh, wow, that's good. Um, so it's an alternative history book. And hopefully the the teachers will include that alternative history book in their teaching. And that's that you know, that's as far as as far as someone is, like my father can take it. He can write the book and go, yeah, this is the information you need to know. Now you need to you need to teach it. Mm. You need to tell oh, the kids about them. I'd love to get a copy of them at some point. I don't know how. Absolutely. And we'll we'll get you a copy. We'll find a way. And then hopefully I would love to read it and then speak to your father, man, because people like that are yeah. really interesting and important to like kind of, you know, expound this type of information, especially on platforms like YouTube, so people can, you know, get talking and discussing. And that's why, I mean, you said he was on uh, the Council for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which I thought was yeah. fantastic. You know, that's something that places like America have never done. You mm-hmm. know, this is why you have these things. I'm not saying it completely heals the situation, but getting people to come out and actually talk about things is the mm. beginning of healing. You know, you need mm-hmm. you need people to get rid of that frustration and that like, yeah, this white man and this black, and you know, and get it out of your system. And then we can realize that, yes, you know, it's just this man, you know. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, bro, it's been it's been awesome talking to you, man. It's been a real pleasure having you. Are there like um do you have any final thoughts or links that people can check out or anything you'd like to share with us? Or? Yeah, man. I mean I mean it's uh go and check out uh Project Orange. Um, I hope that it will be an annual thing and so uh we hope to continue finding ways to for one, make food more accessible just basic food more accessible to people in South Africa. And, and then, like you said, storytelling for me, it's, it's the essence of healing starts with being able to tell your story, being able to speak those words and let out that frustration or that sadness or that anger. Um, and so that's, that's, that for me is, is, the kind of work that interests me the most. And I think that's why I'm in the creative space to facilitate storytelling, whether it's through film, music, theater, whatever it is. 
a medium of expression. I call so, myself a magic facilitator. <laughs> there you go. Nice. Uh, so yeah, man, I, I really appreciate platforms like this because you you don't often get to have these kind of conversations, and they're so important. They are they're so important. So thank you, man. You send me the links anyway, and um, I'll put them in the video description, and then uh, we'll hope to check them out. If you have like a GoFundMe page and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So this has been the Other Side of the Sun podcast with my man Daniel. And people, if you have any comments, questions, um, that's something I see has been lacking in the video. So if you have any comments, questions for me or for Daniel, put them in um, the comments and I'll try to get uh, you know, the voices heard. Or if you don't agree with some stuff I'm saying, because I'm sure there's loads of people out there that don't. <laughs> hey, and don't forget to uh, like, subscribe, share, you know the deal. And uh, thank you for watching. In uh, the other side of the sun. Peace.